0: welcome to tns the new school at commonweal a collaborative learning project exploring nature culture and consciousness join us now for another conversation with rachel lang and host michael lerner titled astrology archetype and the aquarian age
1: welcome everybody it's great to be back doing our webinars in the new year I am Kira Epstein, I'm the program coordinator, and um, we're welcoming today astrologer and intuitive Rachel Lang back to the new school. We did last year, we did a spiritual biography with her. We're recording this conversation, we'll have them on our website, and you can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We have a great lineup of conversations this winter and spring. You can find them all of our, all of them on our website. That is tns.commonweal.org. It's always great to have Michael here with us as a host. And Michael is, I just want to say that Michael is the founding director of the New School and the co-founder of Commonweal. And he's been recording these conversations at the New School since the beginning. And we are celebrating our 15th anniversary this year. So it's great to have Michael here with us. With that, I will turn it over to Michael and you can begin your conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Kira. Uh, And Kira does such an incredible job as does Ken uh, with making the new school possible for all of us. So Rachel Lang, welcome back to the new school.
3: Thanks so much, Michael. It's so great to be back and to be with you all today.
2: Wonderful. You know, we have a little story together that I'll start with. Our, our mutual friend, Susan Braun, um, introduced us to each other and said, you know, I, th- I thought we we might like each other. So I did a, a reading with you, one of your astrological intuitive readings that you do professionally. And I was so struck with it that um, we began corresponding, we developed a friendship, and I asked if you'd do a spiritual biography. And honestly, your spiritual biography is so worth listening to. Uh, It's such a powerful, powerful story. So it's the backdrop for our conversation today. Uh, And as our friendship developed, we branched out into many uh, directions of astrology and intuition and archetypes, And uh, as we thought about what what kind of work we could do together, because we've really been exploring work together, uh, we thought, well, a great starting point is to begin some conversations. So here we are talking about astrology, archetypes, and the Aquarian age. And where would you start with us, Rachel? How would you begin?
3: Well, I think, first of all, just acknowledging that it has been so great to work with you, to get to know you, to have these conversations. And so I really see today's conversation as being a way for us to invite people into some of the dialogue that we've been having and into these larger conversations about what's, about the ways in which the astrological events that are happening Correspond to what's happening here on Earth, and how we can use that information and draw from the symbolism of that to make really conscious choices about how we move forward and co-create together the kind of world that we want to live in and that we want to leave for future generations. And I think right now, more than ever, we have some significant cycles changing that um, that that point to the need for us. To be really dedicated to taking action, um, and and to find ways to to work with nature, and um, and to to see ourselves as 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 not separate from it, but but a part of it. And so, I think that's where astrology can be really valuable, and having this conversation can be really valuable.
2: Yeah, and we both care about nature, and we we both also care deeply about justice. -hmm. And um, and one of the things that differentiates you from uh, many astrologers is that you really bring uh, your your justice frame actually emerging uh, out of uh, Catholic social doctrine, which which you grew up with. But but you bring a justice frame as well as a nature frame as well as a intuitive and astrological frame. So starting there. Let's start with uh, what are the what are the major astrological events that are taking place right now that are affecting us personally, that are affecting the United States, and that are affecting the world. What what is happening that really stands out?
3: Yeah. Um, before I talk about that specifically, I think one thing that I think could be really valuable in just Asking, you know, I think the question of how are these astrological, how does astrology, how do these planets, how do these uh, these these lights in the in the sky relate to what's happening here on Earth and in our personal lives? I think before we go into some of those cycles, I think it can help just to 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 create a framework for.
2: Well, that'd be you know, great. The,
3: the planets the planets don't really do. Um, do anything to us, that you know there they are archetypal images and concepts that that I, I I see astrology as being like a symbolic language that that lets us know that we that we are not separated from created reality and from the universe, from the cosmos, that we are all living and breathing as one organism together. So there's synchronicity. We can see that there is, um, that what's happening above in some way mirrors what's happening at the microcosm, at the level of the microcosm. So when we look at the astrologi- uh, astrological transits of the 2020s, um, uh, they they show us a story that we're living in and that we're a part of. Um, does, Does that make sense or do do, do you have anything you
2: wanted to add to that? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I'm actually glad that you took us back to that as a starting place because it's something you and I have really talked about. So your friend and colleague, Richard Tarnas, who I have done New School conversations with in the past and his extraordinary, extraordinary work. He really makes the case that astrology is... A, a archetypal symbolic language for sure, but he also makes the case, which I know you can also make, that there are really correlations of people's birth dates and what they've done in the world and that seem uncanny in terms of their specificity. Mm-hmm. And so the question is is that what is called in, in social science a confirmation bias? That is, we're looking for it and we discover it. But if we looked more broadly, we could find alternative facts that, you know, relativize that. So one question is, is that real in some undeniable form, leaving confirmation bias aside? Or is what we're dealing with the incredible power of archetypal stories for human beings? So even if it Even if your birth date say say, predicts nothing, even if it predicts nothing, nonetheless, in astrology, in enneagram, in I Ching, in Tarot, in mythology, human beings have forever been creating these unbelievably powerful stories. And my point of view is, even if the birth date or whatever isn't predictive, and there are uncanny suggestions. That they are predictive. But even if that's not happening, the power of these archetypal stories to help us make meaning out of our lives and events is itself invaluable. Mm-hmm. And as I've said to you, if you ask whether the astrological story of our time that we're going to be talking about is, quote, real or just, quote, a myth, I would say, is it any less real than the myth that? unfettered capitalism and eternal progress isn't going to run into planetary limits or that we live in a deeply democratic and just society. So from my point of view, these are all myths. Yeah. And what what astrology, I Ching, Tarot, Enneagram, and many and mythologies offer us is myths that over time have proved immensely creative and generative. So I guess I'm glad you brought us back to that. And I think we can hold it that you're going to be showing us some of the uncanny resemblances that this is real in some way that is part of the mystery is synchronicity, as you put it. Uh, But even if we set that aside, the power of the myths to evoke creative responses and of astrology, to do that seems unquestionable to me.
3: Absolutely. And and if I could share a story to illustrate. Um, so I lived in Joshua Tree for a year. I made my wife live out in the middle of the nowhere, out in the desert. And in Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree is a dark city. So, uh, or, you know, the, there are parts of it that are completely dark. So you can look up and see so many stars. And there would be nights when we wouldn't, have the computers. We would, we wouldn't watch TV. We would just sit outside and watch the stars. And I really got a sense of what ancient cultures of, of the types of imagination that the stars evoke, um, that it really put me in touch with what the ancients we're, we're doing that, that every single night as the planets are moving, as the earth is moving in relation to what's happening in the celestial world, that, that you can see how, how you feel both small and you feel both awestruck by the level of connection that we have. And so, yeah, absolutely. Astrology opens up our imagination and it opened up the imagination of the ancient world and so they could start to follow patterns and here's what's brilliant about astrology astrology is all patterns it's all cycles so economists uses can use astrology like everything can be predicted not in the way that we're saying this planet is moving here and that means this but in a way that that, you know, that we can see where certain trends were, where certain astrological events were happening, um, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, 160 years ago. And we can say what's similar about this time to what was happening then. And one thing that, um, you know, you mentioned Richard Tarnas. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for his work. His wife and I actually work really closely, his wife Yvonne and I actually work really closely together. And um, one of the things that he has, has has written about and has spoken about, and there's actually a new documentary coming out um, in conjunction with, um, with uh, Kenny Ausubel at Bioneers called Changing of the Gods. And I highly recommend it to anybody mm-hmm. who is interested. But he talks about how at certain times throughout history, when pluto and uranus have come together that they have there has been some in certain aspects aspectual relationships that there is what we might consider a revolution and you know he uh, and he he draws very specific um, examples of this and one example that um that that um that that I uh that you know that I'll I'll bring up right now is that in the current... So every planet, uh, whenever two planets come together, it's called a synodic cycle. And it's like the birth date of a relationship between those planets. And in 1965, Pluto and Uranus came together in the sign of Virgo. And every time those planets have an aspect relationship, which is a, a very specific geometric mathematical relationship between each other, We see themes that we saw back then. So there was a square in 2012 to 2017, and we saw similar themes in the 60s. And they are coming together again in another aspectual relationship in 2029. And, um, but we're going to be, we're, we're, because we're still in that conversation and we're still in that cycle. We will see themes throughout the 20s that lead us, that spark the idea of, revolu- of, of revolution and what's coming. So that's just one example of how we can trace the cycle back to its inception and see every time there's been uh, contact that um, that that it's that it's that we're seeing similar themes, and we can do that with every planet.
2: Uh, before you go on, because what you just said was so important. So um, these two planets came into relationship in 1965, and there was, you know, it was a revolutionary period. And they are going to be back in it in uh, 2029. But we have already entered that conversation. Is that so? That points to uh, a revolutionary period between uh i would argue it's already begun
0: mm-hmm. and
2: 2029 um, uh, but it doesn't tell us nor did 65 tell us which direction the revolution will take right in other words it could be a revolution toward uh, uh, values of justice and democracy and a better world it could be a revolution in the other direction is that true that or does do the planets suggest in any way, which direction uh, the revolutions will take? Mm-hmm.
3: The, the So two things, um, I think the birth date of that synodic cycle, October 9th, 1965, what was happening there is that there was a movement towards social justice. That the revolution was civil rights, it was women's rights, it was anti-war protesting, it was all of those things. And you know the um, uh, the the saying, the arc of justice, uh,
2: the arc of um. Oh, be- <laughs> the arc of history is long, but it bends for justice.
3: Right. <laughs> exactly. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. Right. I I think that that I think that that overlies everything. Every one of these cycles. So if we look at what was happening in the 60s and see, oh, okay, there was a movement, a big movement toward justice. And then what was happening in 2012 to to 2016, when we had that square, there was a challenge uh, between those two planets. And so we could see both the sources of injustice and the advocates for justice. We could see things coming into the light that sparked the revolution, sparked a need for revolution. And when they're coming back together again in uh, 2020, we'll, we'll be feeling this from 2026 to 2029. It's a trine aspect. So trines and sextiles tend to be a little bit smoother. And during times when we've had Pluto and Uranus coming together in a trine aspect in the past, and particularly in the two signs that they're going to be in, so Pluto is going to be in Aquarius and Uranus is going to be in Gemini. We see big movements and revolution of thought. And we also see revolutions in terms of giving everyday people access to knowledge, to information that otherwise was kept for the elite. And so, yeah, we are already seeing that trend. I mean, I think we saw some of it starting with um the robin hood you know robin hood and a lot of the economic um shifts that we've seen um since pluto has been in capricorn so the the we're already paving the way for some of these bigger movements and i mean i know i'm an idealist <laughs> but i i really do think that that we are moving toward more justice um and that the revolution will be individuals. I think it's going to be a lot about individuals and versus corporations.
2: Well, that's fascinating because actually you and I haven't talked about this. So it's new territory for us. So is your sense that astrology itself, as you understand it, um, moves toward, uh, an arc that is long, but moves toward justice and human values. Mm. Do, you, do you see that? In other words, is it an overarching movement toward justice and things that we would wish for or not?
3: Mm. Um, yeah, that's a good question because I think there's also the question of, you know, we might wish for something different than other people might wish for. For sure. For sure. No. Um, but but I think you know, drawing from uh, my the- theological background,
0: mm-hmm.
3: I think that we are inherently and Thomas Aquinas actually wrote about this, and and several other uh, Neoplatonists and and, and uh, theologians that we are wired toward the good. That humans are wired toward the good. The good being that philosophical concept of justice, of beauty, with a capital B. And and that because of that, then then wouldn't evolution, wouldn't our evolutionary processes lead us in that direction? And I'm I'm not oblivious to the ways that we have destroyed the earth or the ways that we have separated ourselves from the earth. But I would think that for the survival of our species and the survival of the species on this planet, that we have to move toward justice. And so when we look at astrological symbolism, you know, we can read it one of two ways. One, it does show us some of the the dangers and the warnings. I mean, it gives us a real clear sense of some of the bad weather that's coming that we need to, to prepare ourselves for. But it also shows us the potential that we have to, you know, to look, to take a glimpse at that, that weather, so to speak, and say, how can we be, be prepared? And so some of what I'm talking about is um, in terms of of revolution and in terms of new, like all the different ways that we're going to expand um, access and of resources. And some of that actually has to do with the astrological stories of the signs that Pluto and Uranus are going to be in. And some of it has to do with the astrological stories of those planets themselves and what happens and what has historically happened when they come together.
2: Hmm. One thing we have talked about before that I want to raise again on the, uh, on the depth of the mystery side is that, as you said, people have been studying the stars for forever. And what they figured out really early on was that you could navigate by the stars and that the stars would predict when the next seasons were coming, when you should plant. So they were looking at these stars and they had predictive power. You could navigate by them, which is key, and you could predict the seasons and you could construct these immense stone edifices where the light would come through at just the right moment. And, you know, the priestly classes around the world figured out how to turn that into power and and so on. Um, but when we look at it, all the stories that people have told, these immensely powerful archetypal stories, those stories have been different. And so you have Ayurvedic astrology today, you have the Chinese zodiac, you have Western astrology. So It seems to me hard to argue that one form of astrology is intrinsically superior to others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And therefore, we have this strange conjunction that you're telling these immensely powerful stories which feel predictive in a certain sense, but wouldn't uh, Vedic astrology or the Chinese Zodiac or all the other astrologies in the world tell different stories? And how can we privilege the story of contemporary Western astrology over those other stories?
3: Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we can privilege one over the other Um, because, because, first of all, those stories overlap, that there are these archetypal images within every every different system of astrological thought Mm -hmm. and so we can see real um mysterious and interesting uh correlations between what was happening with um the ancient babylonians in their development of astro their astrology their astrological systems and the mayans with their calendar and their astrology and the chinese and the and the um and the Hindus, like there are so many overlaps. And so while the, mo- the the two that I'm most familiar with are Western and Vedic to a certain extent, but not not really, I, I, I tend to be very hyper focused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I uh so I, I stick to Western. But um you know but I think as with any symbolic system that when that when you that they strike, they they hit to a, they get to a truth of the human experience. And that truth is happening simultaneously within different cultures, in different ways, expressing itself in different ways. The stories we tell are slightly different, but there's, you know, a mother goddess, for example, in every culture. And there's uh, a king god, um, like, so these are archetypal images that are, that are a part of us that are interwoven into our own psyches and that we can see reflected in our world.
2: Mm. I want to ask you where you'll take us next, but I want to offer one other example on behalf of your sense that we're wired, uh, for the good. Um, and that is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but there's this wonderful, uh, principle called the anthropic principle, uh, which um, you can look it up on Wikipedia, those who are not aware of it. But basically, it says that the entire cosmos that we know, as opposed to the multiverse theory, but the only universe that we can see, seems to be perfectly designed to support life. Mm -hmm. And there is a strong anthropic principle and a weak anthropic principle, but it's the unit, the only universe that we can see Mm -hmm. seems perfectly designed to support life. And therefore, and I often think that Stephen Hawking's and the people who posited the multiverse, they do that because it drives them crazy to think that the universe is designed to support life. How could that possibly be? And so they have to argue that actually that's just a random accident and there are all these billions of other universes we happen to live in the one that supports life. But that's actually not the simplest interpretation. If you use Occam's razor, what's the simplest interpretation? Simplest interpretation is the only universe we know is designed to support life. And given that that's true, that means that the laws of the universe are in some sense generative of organic life, which means in some sense that the universe is an organism based in love, based (laughs) in love as the generative force. So if that's the case, not only is Aquinas right that we are oriented toward the good, but that's true because we are at the microcosmic level, an expression of this macrocosmic, you know, and so therefore, if the universe is designed to foster organic life, all over the universe are these experiments in what forms of life develop and where as life develops and becomes in thomas berry's sense the uh, the eyes with which the universe looks back on itself where do life forms develop which have the wisdom to live within the organic laws of the universe and we are indeed one of those experiments And those experiments are infinitely precious. So to me, those come together with the power of these cosmological languages like astrology to say, you know, these languages are actually better in some very real sense than our theories of eternal capitalist growth or whatever it is. So I'll stop there and would love to hear where you'd like to take us next.
3: Yeah. Well, I think, I think just um, to, you know, just yeah. to follow up on what you just said um, that, you know, the ancient, our ancient ancestors, they, you know, in, in a lot of indigenous cultures, the gods and goddesses were here on right. earth. They were the wind, the fire, the the sky, the, st- the stars. Um, and so we could relate with the divine in a very physical experience. And then what started to happen through the Enlightenment um, is that, and as we started going into, you know, industrial uh, revolution, as we started to go into, as the patriarchal cultures started to really, um, you know, take off, we began to separate ourselves from nature and from our bodies and separate the we went into a dualistic framework separating god from us
0: you're listening to a tns conversation with rachel lang and host michael lerner
3: And so I think astrology and one of the reasons why it's so popular right now, I mean, I've been I've been practicing this a long time and and there were many, many years where I couldn't even like I had to on loan applications say that I was a consultant (laughs) or, you know, like like it was not really taken seriously when I first started doing this work. And now it's like there's this whole uh, movement toward, you know, it's trending now, we're having these conversations in places that I've never had before. And, and so I think what's happening is we are returning back to that sense of, of wonder, of awe, of seeing the divine within ourselves, and seeing how these, um, and seeing how we are connected with, with nature, that we're not, that we're not separate. And I think that this is a movement that is going to be, you know, that's astrologically signified um, at this time, but that also is part of that move toward the, the part of us that realizes that we can no longer go on the way that we have and survive. That part of us is waking up to see what else is there. And I love the fact that you said that we they used to navigate by the stars. Because I think that that's what we're doing right now in a way that we're not sailing ships across the ocean, but we can really navigate, um, you know, using astrology um, our way to, um, to creating some real solutions for some of the problems that, that, are, that we have right now. And especially some of the environmental problems that, that are going on, or as you talk about the poly crisis.
2: You know, uh, Sandra Weil has just posted a question that is so relevant uh, that I want to bring it in. Michael's comments bring up the distinction between tropical and sidereal astrology. My understanding is that sidereal astrology and Vedic astrology is based on where the planets, quote, really are, whereas tropical astrology is based on what was true 2,000 years ago. For example, it's no longer true that on March 21, the sun is at zero degrees Aries. That was true 2,000 years ago, but because of the precession uh, of the equinox is the vernal point and everything else is moved. This movement takes place at the rate of one degree every 72 years. I've tried uh, to understand for years, astrologers such as Tarnas and Caroline Casey, who's also a friend, subscribe to the uh, tropical astrology, even though they're well aware of what I've just tried to lay out. Can you uh, help us decipher that? Yeah, sure.
3: I mean, what she's talking about, is yeah, sid- sidereal astrology actually does place um, place us within the what's happening in the it, it is the calculations are based on those those very specific astronomical movements, mm-hmm. but the tropical zodiac is seasonal, and um, and so we look at we kind of break everything down into 30 degree. Every sign is 30 degrees. We split, we divide the heavens into 30 degree parts. So you could look up at the sky and see that while your ephemeris says Mercury is in Aquarius, it looks like it's in Capricorn right there. Um, And, um, and this is, uh, you know, I I think that there's value in looking at both or in in understanding both, but, um, but the, uh, but the, the and this is a debate that's held often with it. Like if you go to astrology conferences, which is the right there, actually was a huge blow up about this on social media a few years ago. One Western astrologer said that this is anyway. It was a it, so this is something that that I think uh, Sandra, you know, we have a lot of a lot of people debate, but you know, but a system that's been in place for two thousand years and people who practice it. We see, we see the, we see that there are, there's enough evidence to support this being viable, the tri, the tropical zodiac being viable, being, you know, being, uh, there's enough evidence showing that these patterns repeat, and these patterns are, um, that they offer the same themes and the same signs, that, um, that it's, uh, that it's, you know, it's accurate it's an accurate
2: system. And that, see, that is a really interesting point. I'm so glad Sandra asked the question and to hear your response and to know that this is a big debate and to understand that the argument in favor uh, of uh, contemporary astrology is uh, that it works. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But what that suggests is one of several things. One is, that it's simply the power of these archetypal stories that is so overwhelming and we've looked at the world this way so long that we've created a narrative that looks works and the other is <clears throat> that because human consciousness is at some level unified that if there is a strong tradition of this in the field of human consciousness that it could be that there are synchronicities that develop precisely because we see the universe this way. So Sandra, thank you for that. And it's a, a profound issue. So I wanted to take that aside, but I really would love now to ask you, where shall we take this next?
3: Well, I think uh, she brings up, so the question of where when does the age of Aquarius start? So we you know we yeah. talk
2: about this yeah.
3: part, of our, part of what we're talking about in um, today's conversation. So Sandra actually brings up that question of when does the age of Aquarius begin? Because mm-hmm. it's different, because um, if we look at sidereal astrology, we're actually looking at the point at which the sign of Aquarius rises on the equinox on March 21st. And um, and so there there are different ideas about when the age of Aquarius starts. I mean, that would be the technical sidereal way of looking at things. But since we do practice tropical astrology and there we break things down into 30 degree. So there are, um, you know, there, there's a a debate too, about when this begins. And so I thought we could, if it's okay, we could talk about the age of Aquarius, because I think it, it's, it's an important talking point as we look forward to what's happening in the 2020s. Um, and so, so, uh, you know, the, the, the people who don't, or the astrologers who, and, um, theosophists and, and other thinkers who don't look at the sidereal procession of the equinoxes to determine the age of Aquarius, look at, you know, takes 25,000 years for the, for the, you know the for the entire, for an entire cycle um, of the the processions, and if we break that down, we have about twenty one hundred years increments where an age lasts. So right now, um, we would be in the age of of Pisces, um, moving toward Aquarius because they all go backward. And what's interesting so so there are some astrologers who say this started in the 1900s this we are in the age of aquarius there are others who say it's 20 it starts in 2600 um, and but everyone can kind of agree that we are either in the transition point leading up to it or that we're in it right now and one of the things that i think is really interesting so if we look at an, if we look at an astrological age it is marked by um, every age uh, and there's a there's a book called The Modern Textbook of Astrology. If anyone wants to look that up, I think Margaret, um, I'm looking at my bookshelf. Um, I think Margaret Horn is the author, but she, you know, describes the this, that that um, and Nicholas Campion is another author who writes about the age of Aquarius specifically. But one of the things that we see is that during each age, there is an idol of worship that relates to the symbol of that sign. So, for example, during the age of Taurus, um, there was the worship of the bull. And um, then in the age of Aries, the Egyptians were worshiping the ram. In the age of Pisces, Christianity, Pisces is symbolized by two fish swimming in opposite direction. And Christianity has been a big feature of the age of Pisces. And so the symbol for Christ is the fish. When we move into the age of Aquarius, the age of Aquarius is actually a concept that was written about, I think the theosophists were the first ones to write about the age of Aquarius in in the 1800s. And, um, and the, and they, uh, and so theosophical teaching was really instrumental in giving us a frame of reference for the Aquarian age. I personally think that we, while we're still sort of in the transition between Pisces and Aquarius, that we are, that we, that as in the in 2020 at the great conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn that happened in the sign of Aquarius, that that really kicked us into the ideals of the Aquarian age, which are, um, and we can draw from some of that theosophical literature, we can draw from the symbolism of the sign of astrology. And so astrology or Aquarius rather is the sign of the individual but it's the individual within a group collective. So it's about our individual participation in the whole. And the symbol of the water bearer is actually the mythological character of Ganymede, who brought water, who was so loved and so handsome that um, that he was taken up to Mount Olympus to serve water to the gods. And so there's this idea within the symbolism of Aquarius, that it's what can we bring of ourselves to serve the divine within ourselves and the divine within one another, within the world, within culture. And and I can talk about some of the Aquarian symbolism or some of the, the, the meaning of that sign, but I think that it's really important for us to have that framework as we're moving into the 20s because you know Saturn's in Aquarius right now, um, and um, and Pluto is going to be entering in 2023 and 2024, and this is you know wherever Pluto moves because Pluto moves so slowly, this is where we see the big movement and the big shift of um, of culture. It's a generational uh, transit, a generational influence, and so we are, you know, getting previews of what that's going to look like. Um, And we can look back and see what was happening the last time Pluto was in Aquarius. But I think this is all moving us into some of those ideals of the Aquarian age.
2: This is so rich. Uh, You brought up so many things. I I hope we can spend time exploring. Um, So, But let's go deeper into the fundamental symbolism of the Aquarian age. Um, And, for example, at a personality level, uh, what is the Aquarian personality at at the individual level? What what is the Aquarian personality?
3: The Aquarian, um, so Aquarius is uh, ruled by Saturn and it's modern... So the planet the modern planet that's associated with it is Uranus. And um, and a ruling planet really gives us a paints a picture of what what this sign is all about. And so we have with Saturn's influence, you know structure, rules, responsibilities, logic. It's also invention. And um, and so we have within an Aquarius personality would be someone who might be a little bit more detached from emotion, someone who's thinking about things logically, someone who's pushing the the limits on what uh, on, on on what previous generations or previous um, you know uh, thinking constructs, what those the limitations of those. Aquarius is uh, the sign of the rebel. It's kind of the one that wants to challenge the status quo and what's been happening. And so we see within the sign of Aquarius a little bit of uh, that, 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 that spark of revolution. Aquarius is also, you know, it's the sign of the individual. So we have, but it's within the collective. So we have two different faces of Aquarius. And this is going to be important as we look for you know, for looking at solutions for some of the global concerns that we have, that we see with Aquarius and with Pluto in Aquarius in particular, we see this distinct difference between dictators and rulers and people who are out for you know self-interest and individual people rising up and demanding rights. Um, Building community, supporting one another. Um, you know, Aquarius is a very humanitarian sign. There's also an emphasis on um, on you know solutions, creating solutions to um, to environmental challenges. Um, so we see you know uh, a real care and a real concern for one another, and I think that's like the hope uh, or the promise of the aquarian age or pluto moving into aquarius i think the hope is that we are going to be looking at ways to um to uh you know support one another help one another we're going to see things like we are already seeing things like crowdfunding cryptocurrency there's a movement to decentralize um those kinds of systems and bring back the this you know the individual power and the power that we all have when we band together and um, and you know create change from a really grassroots level and so these are the bigger movements that that have already started taking shape and that are going to continue to take shape as we get further into the twenties and there's a real technological piece to this too. Because Aquarius is the is the I always associate Aquarius with, you know, in invention. Tech, it is the planet of technology. We do see a lot of technological and space um, movement and and um, innovation during times when Aquarius is really prominent.
2: You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because the, the book that I'm reading now, as you know, I have a deep interest in the global poly crisis, and, and that's a, a center of my research right now. and um, And obviously, there are a lot of people who take a deeply tragic, pessimistic view of the future, but there are also people who take an optimistic or hopeful view. I actually distinguish between optimistic and hopeful, but there are people who take a hopeful view. And one of the people who takes one of the most hopeful views is a guy named Ray Kurzweil. I don't know if you know about him. And this book, my tremor makes it a little hard to see, so I'll shake here for a minute. It's called The Singularity is Near When Humans Transcend Biology. And um, Kurzweil is a genius by any standard, and he makes the case, which a lot of people endorse, that actually this immense acceleration of technology, which is accelerating, whether for good or for evil or both, it is accelerating at, you know, log speed. It's just going straight up. And so uh, it is transforming. Human life on earth. So if we want to be hopeful, and Kurzweil is hopeful, but if we choose hope, uh, we can say that in the Aquarian age, uh, uh, with this technology focus, that actually we can bend the arc of technology toward justice. Uh, So So and and that's uh, there's a big debate between an extraordinary man from Sun Microsystems called Bill Joy and Ray Kurzweil. And uh, uh, Bill Joy wrote an article for Wired magazine called The Future Does Not Need Us about how um, biotechnology, nanotechnology and robotics was going to create a a world where, uh, you know, we were moving from uh, weapons of mass destruction to technologies of mass destruction that could be cooked up in some adolescent's garage, and therefore there was this immense power to build atomic bombs or uh, terrible bacteria or viruses in your garage or in your bedroom or whatever. And so Bill Joy took a deeply, uh, you know, pessimistic view. And in this book, *The Singularity is Near*, Ray Kurzweil and Bill Joy debate each other. So, again, I'm just bringing up that what this has in common is that the age of of Aquarius with the centrality of technology will be a time when our hope and prayer is that Kurzweil is right and that we can move it toward justice. Of course, there's the other point of view, which is very deeply felt, which is it's almost like a medieval point of view, which is. Technology is going to take us to a bad place. We just have to stop it. You know, we just have to stop it. But I think it's hard to stop. So then the hope becomes, as you've said, that in the Aquarian age, with its focus on the individual within the group and the movement toward justice, that technology can be bent toward justice.
3: Yeah. And I think let's look at Pluto um, for a moment and, 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 and pick apart that archetype a little bit because this can help us understand that very thing. Um, Pluto is mythologically the god of the underworld. And so Pluto was the one who was responsible for taking souls Um, and Pluto was relegated to the underworld which was the caves, the caverns, the dark places. And those were the places where gold were jewels where you know precious stones were held. So Pluto was also the god of, of of those riches. And so I like to think about this on a metaphoric level and look at Pluto as Pluto shows us the deep dark aspects of whatever it's coming in whatever sign it's moving through. And we can see this in our own personal charts too. When we go through a Pluto transit, it can be a really interior time where we're healing some very deep stuff. And and so we shine a light on what's not working. And then as a result of that, we come home with treasures. And and Pluto has been in Capricorn since 2008. Hmm. Think about what was happening in 2008. Hmm. This was the time of the mortgage crisis when the economy was crashing, the housing market was crashing. And what we saw, was a spotlight on corruption within industry and specifically within banking. These are Capricorn um, themes. Capricorn is corporations. It's kind of those patriarchal structures of religion, organized religion. Um, you know, uh, economic systems, government, institution, like those kinds of institutions. And since Pluto has been moving through Capricorn, I mean, we started with the Occupy Wall Street movement. And now here we are looking, I mean, cryptocurrency came out of that time because there was a real real awareness for the first time in my lifetime anyway, of the the dangers of corporations having that much power and power um, being related to money. And um, and so Pluto shown a real a real light on um, on on the destructive aspects of of lending, finance, government, all of those things. So so that's an example of how Pluto shows us what needs to be fixed. And it usually breaks things down. It's the death and rebirth. So we die. To the way that we have been living, and we give birth to a new system. And that hasn't happened yet. We are still in the end stages of Pluto's time in Capricorn. And this year in particular is going to be really, um, you know, really enlightening for us, probably not in the easiest way, of what else we need to do to separate you know to 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 basically give people power and take you know and not have so much power in the hands of corporations so aquarius is technology and so what i could see happening for us is you know the beginning stages of pluto's movement through aquarius us having a real sense of you know we're already seeing privacy issues with technology we're already seeing the ways that it can be misused in our political processes and the ways that industry the industrial revolution has really led to so many of the environmental you know crises that we have right now and so i think we're going to have to go through a period of really looking at the dangers of technology and you know now ai is another aspect of this and robots taking jobs like you know you can already hear the talking points building up to this time. And um, and so I think there's going to have to be sort of a, a day of reckoning about all of this that happens in this century or in this um, decade rather, that then allows us to create change. So um, so I think that there's there's a there's light at the end of the tunnel, but I think we have to go through the dark first just to be able to see what we couldn't see before?
2: Um, Around the world, there is a growth in authoritarian leadership and a growth in people uh, supporting authoritarians. Um, The global poll data shows that The young people are anxious, uh, pessimistic, uh, worried about the future. Um, We are clearly going through that in the United States. Uh, If you take the United States with the birth date, whatever birth date you choose, um, uh, is that what? When the Constitution was signed, is that what you choose or what?
3: Um, I use the Declaration of Independence. Declaration
2: of Independence, okay. Um, what, what is the astrological projection for the United States using the birth date as the Declaration of Independence? What do the next years look like for the United States? And basically, is democracy actually going to survive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the,
3: so the U.S., so every 248 to 250 years, Pluto goes back to the same place it was 248 years ago, and that's called a Pluto return. When and so the U.S. is getting ready for its Pluto return. It actually happens. The first exact um, aspect is on February 20th. So just to of- wow.
2: Let's just hold on to that in 13 days.
3: Right. Right.
2: Exact aspect. Yeah. Okay, now that's a really big fact. So what what do what does that symbolize for us?
3: Yeah. So um, when and, and this will happen, we' we're, we're going to be going through this all year. and usually um, a Pluto return is it's uh, it's like a an opportunity to adopt a new identity um, very often it's not it's not going to be an easy time for our country as we try to navigate who are we in the midst of division with, you know, the the Pluto's, the U.S. Pluto's, um, and I have my chart right up here, so I'm, I'm referring to it if you see my eyes looking up. But the U.S. Pluto is a 27 degrees Capricorn for those who follow astrology. And it's in the second house, which deals with taxes, income, money, uh, our values and priorities around money, and so uh and and you know the country was started the the declaration was signed there there were so and and this was you know we're we're seeing very similar themes astrologically to what was happening back during the american revolution during that that late 70s period uh 1770s period and um and so one of the things that we, that was prevalent then, and that has been prevalent every time we have, uh, you know Pluto has been at the last degrees of Capricorn, has, there has been an attempt to separate from some sort of oppressive system. So the we know we saw this just before the Protestant Reformation, for example, Pluto was in the same place. Um, and the american revolution but there were revolutions that were happening at other times um uh, at that period as well um and so and so the country is going to be going through an identity crisis figuring out who we are um and um and i think that that the economy is um is going to be uh going through a pretty volatile period as we navigate that question of identity so i think we'll be looking at things like debt and i think that this is going to be on a systemic level but it's going to reach into our personal lives and i don't want to make anybody afraid and i'm definitely not giving absolute predictions because every astrological cycle has a spectrum of possibilities
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Lang and host Michael Lerner.
3: But I think that these are all going to be things that we're looking at and things that we're, you know, that we're, that we're raising awareness about. And I think the biggest thing, because, you know, because Pluto shows us the dark underbelly, so to speak, I think the biggest thing that we're going to be seeing is the, just the injustice with how um, you know with how certain groups of people have been kept away from resources and therefore from power. And I mean my hope is that we really shine a spotlight on that in a way that creates just solutions um and um, and uh, that disconnects the pa- disconnects the structures of power and the systems of power from wealth, and, corp- and corporation. Um, and that puts it back into, you know, into, I think, bringing about some of those real themes of what democracy was supposed to be at the time mm-hmm. of American Revolution. It was for the people, by the people. And that has not been the case, or mm-hmm. it hasn't been for all the people.
2: So that's the projection for the United States. So this rising challenge of authoritarianism versus democracy, which is not only happening in the United States, it's really happening around the world. That's different from the birth date of the US uh, as distinguished by the Declaration of Independence. Is there an astrological understanding of the global uh, acceleration of conflict between um, uh, authoritarians and Democrats? Mm
3: Yeah, I think um I I personally Saturn gets a bad rap <laughs> for astrolog for, for some astrologers, but Saturn relates to, you know, where Pluto is shining a light on on what's what needs to be healed, Saturn is looking at existing structures and saying, how can we fix this in a very rule-based practical way. And and we've had saturn moving in its own sign so saturn rules capricorn saturn rules aquarius and saturn has been in aquarius since uh late 2020 and before that for two and a half years it was in capricorn and so um and so saturn is all about rules and structure and order and so and so we've seen some of these themes of of um, uh, you know power and who has it, who doesn't, who misuses it. We've seen a lot of that under um, under both Pluto Pluto's time in Capricorn because we've talked a lot about Pluto and Aquarius. But Pluto's been in Capricorn since 2008, and then Saturn's move through uh, through Capricorn and Aquarius, and this all really came to a head. In um, you know in in uh, I mean I think we we saw we saw it in 2016 for sure mm-hmm. and um, and and I and it's funny I I look I looked at Pluto's Pluto and Capricorn and that movement and then Saturn and Capricorn and I remember talking to um, to a friend of mine who's an activist and she's like what do you think this is going to be mean and I said I think it's patriarchy's last stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, if Capricorn is those institutional structures Mm
2: -hmm. that
3: have been historically patriarchal and Pluto's shining a light and saying this doesn't work anymore on what's not working anymore, then we saw the fall of Harvey Weinstein. We saw the Me Too movement. We saw a lot of anyone who's abused power, not anyone, but a lot of people and a lot of systems where there has been an abuse of power that there was a re a, you know like a there was a, a spotlight on those on those um on those wrongs and um and so I think Pluto's time in Capricorn and Saturn moving through its own sign is helping us to really create new infrastructure and and infrastructure is a Saturn word. So infrastructure not just in how we can, you know, in our physical structures and our buildings and our, but it's looking at how do we create a new infrastructure in the social structures that, you know, that that support our our society.
2: Mm. Um, it's a really, there's some very profound questions here. One is I, I've been personally beyond delighted to see this be patriarchy's last stand. I have long believed that if women ran the world, we would be in a better place. I just think that, I mean, or if the feminine within us was more predominant, if you want to take a non-gendered perspective on it. But you look at the women who are in power in different states around, different countries around the world, and they just they tend to be more skillful. I mean, it's, you know, Margaret Thatcher uh, might be an outlier, but there are a lot of women who've been, Andrea Merkel and many others, who've done immensely skillful jobs. So I'm, I'm all for that. The other side of it for me is when you have a revolution that takes place in the name of the people, um. Uh, that's all very well and good. The question is, what happens after those revolutions? So you look at communism in the Soviet Union. You look at what happened in Nicaragua. Uh, you look at many places where revolutions take place in the name of equality and the people. And guess what? They often end up in uh, dictatorships. You look at China. Uh, they end up in dictatorships, as a matter of fact. So. One of the profound questions in the progressive conservative uh, uh, dialogue that's gone on since the 1770s and the French Revolution and, you know, Burke's response to it as a a British conservative is what actually works better? Let's posit that there's immense uh, unfairness in the system. What actually works better? Do you actually get a better world by revolutions in the name of the people and democracy, or do you get a better world by ongoing, ever-changing, patient reform of existing structures and systems? Um, And I personally, I think that probably depends on the country. Uh, you know, in in countries with long established democratic traditions like Britain and to some degree the United States. And, you know, uh, I think you may do better with reforms, but I just point to the reality. It's one thing to say, let's have a revolution in the name of democracy and fairness, and another thing to see what actually happens afterward.
3: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And, you know, one of the things that that I mean, drawing from the Aquarian symbolism. So Ganymede, um, the mythological character, was, you know, it's like, was a very effeminate man, mm-hmm. um, boy, or, you know, very attractive there. And so within the sign of Aquarius, there the sign of Aquarius is actually associated with the, the separate the, the opening up of binaries. So it's associated with um, homosexuality because of Ganymede's char- uh, character. Um, and I think that that what, I mean, I think that we're creating a whole new system. I don't think we're moving away from patriarchy to matriarchy. I think we are, I think we are we're we're finding a way to um to move out of a polarized mindset worldview that we that yeah, I think we can go to we might go to extremes of to, to try to find our balance point, the mm-hmm. extremes of dictatorship, the extremes of revolution and anarchy. And I think the I think that 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 there's a whole new model for government that's that, that's being created that's being birthed at this time and i think it probably won't happen i mean i think that 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 we that it'll probably be toward the end of pluto's time in Aquarius that we're actually you know seeing that seeing what what we're creating and um and so i think we're looking at 2044 um, being the time when that when we're in this new, Paradigm. Um, but I think right now, uh, like we have an opportunity to do some creative visioning together and say, mm-hmm. what could it look like? If it's not communism, if it's not socialism, though there are aspects of socialism and aspects of democracy that work for us and that work for the common good, like what can we create? What what does that look like? And so I think right now is the time for um for us visionaries, for us spiritual people for us, you know, heart centered people who really want to see the world be a better place. I think now is the time to, to move into a spiritual process. Hmm. Um,
2: I want to bring us beyond astrology for a bit into your, in your practice, you work a lot as an intuitive. And for those who, um, uh, take up my offer to look at your extraordinary spiritual biography on the New School website, which Kira posted and perhaps could post again. Um, uh, In in your practice, you merge your intuitive gifts um, with your astrological gifts. And how you came to that is this extraordinary Journey that's described in your, your biography, but but let me just say briefly that you came out of an evangelical Catholic family and had some really difficult times as a young person, and and discovered astrology and the esoteric literature and your own capacity uh, for extraordinary intuition. So um, when you look at the world beyond astrology. Does your intuition allow you to explore things that are not just about individual people and individual circumstances, but does it give you insight into uh, this uh, extraordinary moment that the world is going through?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, if I can share, um, if I can share, I'll get personal now. But no, um,
2: please do, please do.
3: Yeah, Michael, um, you know I, I I told you this, uh, but. I I was, I was on, on a vacation in Santa Fe, I think it was like two years ago. And um, I had a dream and it was a very vivid dream. It was a visitation. I looked, I opened my eyes and it was kind of a lucid dream state. And there were all these indigenous, there were the, the ceiling was full of these indig- like indigenous faces faces of indigenous people. And I, I don't have any conscious awareness of my own lineage. So this was very much of a, you know, a sense of like deep ancestry, but also a, a guiding message. And they were, um, I'm seeing the vision in my mind right now. And there was one kind of leader of this, of this group who who basically said, that in order to create peace, that we need to be drawing from the wisdom of our indigenous ancestors, and that um, that we need to create foundations of peace that start with the inside, start with who we are, our own, you know, finding ways to balance the inner conflict, because if we are a microcosm of the macrocosm, and if everything is in synchrony as we believe because of astrology and because of, you know, we can see evidence of it in our lives that whatever we're healing on an individual level is going to ripple out into the whole, but that also those of us who are healing on that level have a call um, to be creating community for other people, Peacemaking communities for other people who are, um, you know, who are waking up to to that within themselves. So I think that that is really where we're moving. Um, And I think that you know, I did I wrote a book about magic, and I did my I did my master's research, and I've been working with magic for a, a long time. And magic is really just that a spiritual practice that sees that it's an embodied spiritual practice that sees us in relationship with all of the forces of nature. And, you know, and so I think that, that we need a spiritual revolution in order to heal the, the, you know, the collective trauma that we've all been through Um, and the the trauma of injustice and the trauma of marginalization, all of all of those, and just the trauma of 2020. Um, and, so, and so I think that 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 is really, you know, when you ask what is my intuitive sense, that's where I lean. It's like awakening compassion on a level that we've never seen it before.
2: We're talking about your intuition right now. When we do a session, I've watched you go into the intuitive space. I don't know, uh, and please tell me if this is not the right direction. I don't know whether on a webinar it's possible for you to go into that intuitive space and ask either the indigenous leader or people that you saw. What their guidance in this moment is, or uh, whether there's any way, instead of simply talking about the intuitions you've had, to give people the experience of your intuitive work in the present about this. is that possible?
3: Yes, I love that. This is beautiful. All right. actually, Michael, what I'm feeling would work best is if um, is yeah, I can absolutely um, open, and I'm already doing it right now. As you can tell, my I for those who haven't experienced, usually when I go into that space, it changes the way that I'm able to process information. So, um, so my vo- my words get a little choppy. Um, but actually, if I could work with your guides, who the there's one that's coming through. Would that be okay with yes, you?
2: That would be perfect.
3: Okay, great. And I'm feeling, um, and I'm feeling like there is, uh, I'm feeling like there's actually, (laughs) uh, that that actually Michael, would I be correct in saying that you have been, that you've been asking some of these questions yourself? Like you've been exploring this, like where do you fit into, um, into this time? How do you plug into this time? Is it does that make sense
2: to you? Is yes, that... absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am absolutely engaged in asking how I and how Commonweal and how our community and friends around the world can respond to the global polycrisis. That's the central question that I'm holding right now.
3: Okay, beautiful. Um, they're they're telling me that. And I feel like I'm working with a teacher, like a a teacher guide and not one of your, not your father, for example, or not one of your, you know, loved ones in spirit. And I feel like you are like you're asking this question for yourself, but everyone here, um, this is your answer too. So for all of you, like, you don't, you all don't know all of our participants. You don't know that you were called to this today. To hear this message that Michael's that Michael's bringing in for you, but what I see first of all, I see two things. He um, he says, uh, okay. So so actually, he says that 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 um, that moving so movement so yoga. I feel like I feel like I'm talking about yoga, but in a different way than just going through the practice of yoga, but I feel like it's embodying that life, that whatever that life is, the bringing in the breath, having the moments of stillness. And so let's just do that right now. Mm -hmm. So he's saying centering the body. Centering the body so that you can... So that you can draw in the energies of the earth through your feet. That you can. um, He's actually saying that this, that the best thing that we can do is to be, be here on earth. So it's our presence, your presence, Michael, being here on earth feeling the waves of the earth moving through your body. That you don't have to go out into the mental realm. You don't have to go out into some upper transcendent spiritual realm. That actually it's the everyday movement of your feet on the earth. And it's being adjusting slightly what's out of balance in your body. In order to um, to bring to in order for your body to be a conduit of light on Earth, and I keep asking, like, well, is that it? (laughs) Like, that doesn't seem like it's very important. Like that, I would imagine that there would be something bigger, like start an organization or write a book, or. And he says, no, none of that matters, Um, because it's on the ground. it's being grounded in this reality that that allows us to be healers of this reality of the earth. Now, that's one piece of it. There is another piece. And that is, uh, hang on one second, I feel just like the surge of joy right now. Um, you know, he's actually saying that for, and this is a, I feel like this is a specific message for you, um, that gathering people together in circle, like gathering people together in circles. Um, so the healing circles that you do, he said, do more of that, um, where people are actually holding hands. And I think that this is probably a metaphor, not necessarily in-person groups, Um, But if every single one of the people watching this were to do that, were to gather people together in their homes, in their churches, in their community centers, in their Zoom rooms, if every single person were to do that and those people were to start their own circle or, you know, other people were to start their other circles, then this there would be no reason why we would have these problems because it's the interpersonal connections, the one-on-one connections that actually do the most change that ripple out the most change. And that's, I guess I'll leave you with that.
2: Mm. Just go into quiet for a moment. Peace, peace. Rachel, that was so powerful for me. Thank you. And I I hope and trust that power extends to the community of us who were called to be together. So we have another five minutes or so. What have I not asked you? What would you like to say? I mean, I know we're going to keep doing this together. So this won't be the last time we've talked about uh, things that we'll do in the future. And I I so love doing this together. It's just so wonderful. But for today, what are your last thoughts or reflection?
3: Yeah. Oh wow, that was really that was really power. That was really powerful. So I think um I'm just I'm offering gratitude um to your guides. Mm-hmm. Um to all the guides of everyone. I mean, now I can feel that as soon as I open up, I feel people like filling the room, saying hi. Uh, and so if I could actually give another message, is that, is that okay? No,
2: please, please.
3: Because I do feel like I want to connect. I feel like every single person here and I want to connect with every single person here. Um, and so I'm kind of going through the list in my mind of who's here. So if, you, if you're listening and you feel like, oh, I felt that. I hope so because I'm doing that right now. As your loved ones are are sending information, um, at the risk of being too woo woo, um, and so I hear that um, that uh, that actually it's all going to be okay. Um, that you know we're also concerned about about what's going to happen and. And you know, we see the wildfires and we see the pandemic. We, we see all that is happening and we are worried. Um, but we are being so infinitely held and supported. And there are so many loving um, spirits who who have our back, who want us to be happy, to be joyful, um, and so there's a message of we are, you know, as much as we all feel a sense of responsibility for leaving the world in a better place than, than it is right now or than it was when we were born, that we're, that we're not in this alone. And so, And so let your path be filled with joy in what you do. Um, and that, and that energy, like that reaches up to the spirit realm in a very big way. Um, so, so that, that was, that was the message.
2: Thank you, Rachel. Well, it surely was powerful for me. And just judging from the people who are leaving notes, all kinds of lovely notes coming in, So, folks, um, tune back in for more with Rachel and me. We're going to find ways to keep doing this together. Thank you for staying with us for the whole hour and a half. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much. And please hold on at the end for a minute so we can check in. And with that, um, Kira, I want to bring it back to you, please.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you all for joining us. Um, we will hopefully see some of you at least next Friday. We've got another event uh, that we're co-presenting with Real Food Media. So check our website, tns.commonweal.org. Thank you.
2: Goodbye, friends. Thanks for being with us. That's just wonderful. Ooh,
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Rachel Lang and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Common Wheel is spelled C O M M O N W E A L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.